From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, CEO of the Wexner Medical Center at The Ohio State University, Dr. Stephen Gabby, tells us about his writing and his medical editing and who his favorite singer-songwriter is. But first, OSU librarian Ann Fields talks to NPR librarian Key Molesky about the kinds of things that Molesky researches for NPR, including that interesting train-crashing fad that you've heard so much about in the history books. Stay tuned. This is Ann Fields, and I'm the librarian for English at The Ohio State University. And today, it's my pleasure to be talking to Key Molesky, reference librarian at National Public Radio, and the author of the new book, Learn Something New Every Day, 365 Facts to Fulfill Your Life. Hi, Key. Hi, Ann. I listen to Morning Edition and Weekend Edition every day, and I've always wondered who was this mysterious librarian, Key Molesky. So I'm so happy to be able to talk to you, especially because I'm a librarian myself. That's great. Your book is titled Learn Something New Every Day, 365 Facts to Fulfill Your Life. Before I ask you to read some from your book, would you tell us something about how this book came to be? Well, this is actually my second collection of facts. Two years ago, I published All Facts Considered. Uh, and I have to say, this none of this was my idea. I actually was approached by an editor at uh, John Wiley and Sons in New York. And um, he had worked on a book with NPR's Scott Simon that I was a little bit involved with. So that's how he knew who I was. And he just figured that any reference librarian would have a brain stuffed full of all kinds of interesting true, true. and unusual facts, right? And right. so after 25 or more years doing that, that we ought to put them in a book. And so we did, and it was uh, fairly well received. So we did a second collection. And this time we decided to do it kind of as a calendar thing uh, and do one fact for every day of the year. And of course, being a librarian, I insisted that we include leap year, leap day. <laughs> and so there is actually 366, and oh. it's a bonus fact for leap year. <laughs> Well, actually, I think the title of the book is a bit of a misnomer because each day isn't really a fact, but it's kind of a short, short story based on fascinating facts. Well, that was what I really wanted to do. I think working with journalists for so long, I think of them as storytellers. And that's what I wanted to do. Find some little fact that I thought was interesting or perhaps would surprise people was not something that was well known. But find enough detail and voices to tell a nice, succinct little story mm -hmm. about it. Well, one of my favorite days was March 24th, Operation Acoustic Kitty. Do you want to read that one for us? Oh, I'd be happy to. <laughs> We've all heard about the cool gadgets spies have used over the decades, from cameras hidden in cigarette packs to weaponized umbrellas. But there were some not-so-cool projects as well, perhaps none more bizarre than the experiment the Central Intelligence Agency labeled Acoustic Kitty. At the height of the Cold War in the mid-1960s, American spies thought it would be a good idea to surgically implant a microphone and transmitting gear inside a cat. The animal could then be trained to eavesdrop surreptitiously on the Kremlin or at Russian embassies. After investing millions of dollars, the CIA was ready for the first live trial. The cat was released and was immediately run over by a taxicab. 
The spies cut their losses and ended the program, noting in a memo that despite successful training, using cats to spy would, quote, not be practical. Typical government (laughs) understatement. Right. (laughs) Now... Um, you're a good librarian, so you're meticulous about citing your sources on these stories. Uh, but the source of this one was an actual CIA document. That's and right. that, that begs the question, why are you reading CIA documents oh. <laughs> in the first place? Well, I read anything. I mean, a good librarian takes information wherever you might find it. And then, of course, the step of finding other sources uh, that back it up or in in one way or another evaluating and and assuring that what you have are good sources. Uh, What we did with this book was uh, put most of the source material online on my website, kimaleski.com. That way I can add new things. If if we learn more detail of this program, I can uh, add something to it or uh, any if a, a new report comes out on any of the facts or something occurs to change one of those facts or modify it in some way, um, you get free updates online. Okay. The CIA decides to take up the program again. (laughs) Yes, I'll I'll warn everyone. (laughs) Okay. Another one of my favorite stories was September 15th, the crash at Crush. And I must say, I'm sending this out to my daughter-in-law because she's from Waco. Do you want to tell us that story? They're mentioned in there. That's right. Yeah. Americans have always liked to do things in a big way, sometimes really big, especially in Texas. It was just north of Waco in September 1896 that the first pre-arranged head-on crash between two trains occurred. William Crush, an agent for the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railway Company, thought it would be a good way to get some publicity for the railroad and turn a profit. He spent months making arrangements and publicizing the event. 40,000 people came to the place that has been dubbed Crush, Texas City for a Day, where four miles of tracks were laid. The two old locomotives, each pulling seven boxcars, rumbled toward each other at about 45 miles per hour. The engineers leaped out just before the impact. Boxcars flew into the air. The boilers exploded, sending shards of metal everywhere. Smoke and steam billowed out over the crowd, where three people were killed by debris and many more injured. Despite the harm it caused, William Crush had started a fad that would last for decades. A man named Joe Connolly was inspired by the event and made a career of staging train crashes at state fairs, some 73 wrecks in all. Perhaps his most famous crash was at the 1932 Iowa State Fair, where one train named Hoover sped toward another named Roosevelt, it was an election year, meeting in a gigantic explosion that was captured on film. His life's work earned Connolly the nickname Head On Joe. Connolly's biographer explains the attraction. I guess the train wrecks appeal to the more primitive side of man, the thrill of seeing something destroyed. Nowadays, people go to demolition derbies. (laughs) Now, I I found that fact, actually, uh, a friend of mine posted uh, a picture on Facebook of that 1932 Iowa State Fair, and I said, they crash trains intentionally? I have to put that in the book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now I'm putting on my librarian hat, and I see a number of you know uh, URLs as sources for the 
for these stories. Um, how much has your life changed as a librarian since Google uh, came along? Oh, I, I mean, there are not words to describe. It, obviously, it's been a profound change uh, going from pretty much all print reference library collection uh, to the kind of immediacy that we have today. It's just uh, certainly in news libraries where the deadline pressure is pretty constant. Um, it has just made a tremendous uh, impact. But we do still have books and journals and, and other things for various reasons that uh, print uh, materials and paper in general are not quite going away yet. Do you still keep the old-fashioned uh, clipping clipping file that I remember? No, from we did. Ages we ago? did for decades. We had clip files, and I guess about five years ago, uh, we decided to discard them because it wasn't really a good use of the librarian's time to to clip and maintain those. And we find other ways to uh, to provide information to the newsroom. And also, I'm wondering, probably the people listening are wondering, too, why is a librarian um, listed in the credits of Morning Edition? It's well, probably not the person they think of. Well, I'm not the only librarian. Of course, it's quite a team here, uh, and v different names show up at different times. But we are an essential part of the editorial process for the newsroom, and we support all of NPR. We um, help other departments uh, in many different ways. Uh, we curate the the entire audio collection, the program history of NPR. So we really do have a lot of responsibility, and uh, we certainly think it's appropriate that we, we be thanked publicly. <laughs> well, yeah. it's been a pleasure talking to you, and Thank I think this book is just tons of fun, and some of those stories I told my husband about, he's hard to impress, but the oh. one about the Crush, oh. crush City, he thought it was, <laughs> he actually rolled about. Oh, that's great. <laughs> he thought that was hilarious. Great. Thank so, you. Thank okay, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more information about NPR librarian Key Molesky or her book, visit www.writerstalk.org. And now, my discussion with the CEO of the Wexner Medical Center, Dr. Stephen Gabby. Dr. Stephen Gabby is the CEO of the Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. He has authored numerous medical articles proving, among other things, that diabetes could alter the ability of a placenta to provide energy for a fetus, a finding that had a marked impact on 1970s prenatal care. He wrote the clinical guidelines for managing diabetes for the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and he acts as the senior editor for Obstetrics, Normal, and Problem Pregnancies, a medical text which the current edition weighs in at 1,312 pages. So welcome to Writer's Talk, Dr. Gabby. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks. Now, right from the beginning, you, when you were a medical student, were very involved, as one might expect, in, in medicine because you diagnosed yourself with type 1 diabetes as a third-year medical student. Is that yes. accurate? Okay. Yes. So I was doing a rotation and uh, developed acute symptoms and suspected what was happening and did some tests and then went to student health and they confirmed my diagnosis. Okay. You said um, in a recent interview, I realized the more I learned about caring for pregnant women with diabetes, the more I'd learned about my own diabetes, and then I could share that with my patients. So it seems fair to say that your medical history has influenced some of your yes. career. Tell me about the development of this textbook then, which has sure. uh, a lot about obstetrics and um, some about diabetes, not as much as the next. But how did you get started on that? What led you down that way? Sure. Well, I, you know, I had started off as in high school and college as a newspaper reporter, so I enjoyed writing. Okay. And I had some great mentors who helped me and 
taught me how to write in a very direct, fact-based manner. And that really helped as I got into uh, medical writing, uh, writing research papers, writing chapters for books. And I was about, um, oh, a dozen years into my career after training when a friend of mine, someone I'd met during my training, uh, said he'd been approached by a medical publisher uh, to do a book on obstetrics. Uh, his area of the specialty was pretty narrow. He was focused on uh, genetics and prenatal diagnosis. So he told the publisher that he had two friends who were uh, more involved broadly in the specialty and he wanted to talk to them. Uh, at that time, there was really one textbook in obstetrics, Williams Obstetrics. Mm -hmm. It was written by the folks at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And uh, it was how they cared for pregnancy. Uh, didn't have contributors from around the country, was relatively narrow in its focus. So the three of us met, talked about the opportunity, and then we did some uh, fact-finding, and we talked to folks we knew around the country and asked them if there was a place for another obstetrics textbook. Mm -hmm. And the word we got was yes. Uh, we need something that's more balanced, that has more opinions about uh, how to manage patients beyond just one institution as good as it was. So we decided uh, that we would work with then Churchill Livingstone and prepare the first edition of the book. I remember hearing from the publisher some words of caution. They said, only a third of the books that people sign a contract to write ever get finished, uh, either because people just give up or just find they can't do it. And next they said, and of all the books that do get published, only 10 or 15% make it to a second edition. So those were some challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the percentage that make it to the sixth edition? Do you know? I don't know, but I, I can tell you that uh, the books on my bookshelves, there aren't any that are in the sixth, the sixth edition. edition. Okay. And, well, tell me about uh, the editorial process that you go through for this. Um, how do you choose collaborators? You mentioned that they're spread out across many different areas geographically. Well, you know, we've, we've been doing this now for about 30 years. So the process has really changed. When we, when we began, we decided we wanted to write a book that would appeal to medical students and residents and fellows, that it would be a book that you could read a chapter in a single evening. So if you had to prepare for a presentation the next day or learn more about a difficult patient, that we wanted to have both normal and complicated or high-risk obstetrics in a single volume. We wanted to have a book that had, as I said earlier, contributors from throughout the country. Yeah. So we could get as many opinions, as many uh, people's experiences as possible. So we looked at the people who were the leading leaders in the field in each of the important topics in the specialty. And uh, we invited them to, to prepare chapters. Virtually no one turned us down. They all agreed to write their chapters. At that time, we didn't have word processors. We didn't have the web. We didn't even have fax machines. So the chapters all came into us uh, typed, and we went from there. Now, one of the things we really wanted to do was be sure that the style of the book was consistent, uh, and that while people might write about it, topics, uh, the same topics in different chapters, we didn't have dramatic uh, conflicting opinions, where in one chapter the uh, author said, I do it this way, 
And in another chapter, someone said, well, that way is absolutely crazy. So I decided, and it's been true through all the editions to this day, that I edit every chapter for the final editing. I go through every chapter, I edit it uh, in style, and I make sure that the facts agree, or if they disagree, that there's an explanation why they disagree. And I think that's given the book a consistency uh, that people have appreciated. It's been a lot of work, but I think it's been well say, worth it. How much does time would you say it takes to produce a new edition? How long is that whole process? Right. So we generally will start about two to two and a half years before the book is going to be published with the target of having the book to the publisher for printing. Well, originally it was with, it, with about a year, but now because the technology has improved, we can get the chapters in closer to eight months before the book will be printed. We look for people, as I said, who are leaders in the field, but also very important, we look for people who will get the work done. In every edition, except this one, the sixth, we've had people who just didn't keep their word. And we found ourselves having to take on those chapters uh, as, as editors ourselves. Uh, the first few editions were just three editors, myself, uh, Jolie Simpson, and Jennifer Niebel. And we've known each other since the late 60s. And then, because we were getting older and we were uh, doing more and more administrative and leadership positions, we added uh, editors who were more like we were when we first started the book, people who were dynamic leaders in their fields, so we could keep bringing new life into the book. So do you bring them in and teach them a certain editorial process when they come in and you say, this is the style that we use? Is that part of the training to be, become a uh, editor on the book? They've all read the book and many of them have been contributors. Um, but we have a team meeting with the publisher, Elsevier in Philadelphia, and we spend a couple of days looking at what the successes have been with the previous edition. We do a lot of surveys to find out what people liked or didn't like about the book, areas that we didn't cover as well as we could have or that we covered well. And we, we really use that information to help guide us in the next edition. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we uh, divide the book up and we uh, each take a certain number of chapters that we are the primary editor responsible for and work with the uh, authors of those chapters to bring them to completion. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Gabby, CEO of the OSU Wexner Medical Center. You've got sort of two roles. I mean, you're yeah. the CEO yeah. of the, Wex the OSU Wexner Medical Center. How do you no, keep up with yeah. the field? Yeah. Uh, with what I take to be a very large, yeah. rapidly changing field. Well, and to answer your question, I didn't really answer your earlier question. You know, how do you get this done? Well, if you ask people who do this, and it's, I think, also the same as you'd find if you ask people how they do research, um, it just takes the time in uh, nights and weekends and holidays and sometimes vacations. <laughs> I mean, that's the time you have to put in to get this done. So I'll spend a weekend working on the book because I don't have time to do that during the week. Uh, so that's really been, you know, an important, important part of, of that. Now I get uh, lots of medical journals and I keep running files of articles that I think will be important to the authors who will be writing the chapters. So after we assign authors to 
prepare their chapters, I'll send them a group of articles that I think are essentials to be sure they'll update their chapter with those articles. And then I try to read as much as I can. You wrote a June 2012 article for the Columbus Dispatch that was all about the need to attract medical students into primary care. Uh, writing for a newspaper like that seems like a fairly distinct genre from the kind of writing that you would do for either of these sorts of textbooks. Tell me about making that shift into communicating with a, a general audience. How do you decide what to include and, uh, and how to write it, how to structure it? I think when you're doing an op-ed piece, it's a much more conversational mm -hmm. style, uh, as if you have someone you're talking to face-to-face -face and describing to them the issue you want to address. It, it is facts-based, and you have to make sure your facts are correct. We did an, an op-ed on uh, the indebtedness of medical students, and we had several inquiries about the figure that's, that we used to describe the indebtedness of of students in this country and where that came from and what, what it was based on. So uh, in a textbook, it's, it's really so facts-based and so referenced, and you want to be able to support the statements you make. In an op-ed, it's a much more conversational style. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned the pages before, 1,300-plus pages. One critically important decision we made was that as the editions come one after another, what the chapter authors tend to do is they'll add more references to the references that are already in the chapter. So you'll wind up with chapters that have hundreds and hundreds of references uh, dating back now 20, 25 years. And what we decided was to tell the authors that they would be allowed to have a hundred references in the printed chapter in the book. Any further references would be in the online version. And that saved us hundreds of pages of, of, of references, but they're still available online. And, and with our book, if you open the inside cover and scrape off a little silver seal, you get an online code. And then you can reference the, access the book online. And there's some great search engines for the book in that respect. Has that tended to lead to people culling um, all the older material and going with the newer material for the references? Or yes. Is, okay, so it's yeah. not just I have the most references kind of game anymore. No. It's I have the most recent, right. more like APA style right. where you'd have the, the date attached to everything. Exactly. And, and so we may, you know, they may want to include some classic references that do go back several decades, but ideally we'd like them to include the latest information uh, the book cycle has been about five years, so what's happened in the past five years? Another thing we've done over the years is to make the book more readable and more uh, the facts more accessible. So after the first edition or so, we added 10 key points at the end of every chapter. You could look back at those key points and you'd get the key facts in the chapter. Then we added in this edition a highlighted uh, uh, sentences or highlighted paragraphs. So if you said, boy, I got to get through this quickly, if you read the highlighted sentences and the key points, you'd have a good sense of what the chapter was all about. Okay. People want access to information quickly, and we tried to help with that. That's one of the interesting hallmarks of medical writing, because you've got people who are often in a hurry trying to get uh, that sort of information. And it brings me to my next question, because as a patient, I tend to regard, say, electronic medical records as sort of doctors filling out check boxes. And <laughs> I'm curious about your take on the impact of something like that on medical writing and communication, because it is so 
just the facts, just the basic stuff? Is it changing the way that patients are described in the after, uh, the notes afterwards or how they're described in the literature? Because yeah. you look back and you see the check boxes as opposed to maybe a more written description of them. Well, we, we have an EPIC medical record, which is the, ep, which is the electronic medical record used by most of the major academic medical centers in the country. And we've been, uh, installing it over the last five years. Now, installing it sounds like it's, a, you know, you're putting in a new, uh, sound system in your house. It's, it's really a cultural change. Uh, people need to learn how to use the electronic medical record, uh, how to use it most effectively. We began with the installation of the outpatient record that took several years. And then just about a year ago, in what's called the Big Bang, we did the inpatient record. To do that, we had to train 14,000 people. Everyone had to be trained to use the electronic medical record if they wanted to continue to work here. Uh, the nurses were a really important part of that transition. The great thing about the electronic medical record is that it is fact-based. The facts are easily accessed, but it also gives you the opportunity to use text to describe the patient. Now, what's really unique about the record is that you as a patient can access your record anytime you want to, and that's called the MyChart application. And we now have about 35,000 patients on my chart. So they can look at the medical results from their testing. They can communicate with their doctor or nurse. They can set up an appointment. They can question something. And I know that patients will correspond and say, uh, you know, doctor, I was in the office. We talked about this. I went through my chart. It looks like the results might not be quite what we talked about. Can you explain that to me? Okay. So it really, you know, we, we practice what's called personalized healthcare, P4 medicine, medicine that's preventive, predictive, participatory, and personalized. And that really gets into the participatory part of healthcare. So patients access their record at any time. They don't have to worry about the office calling them after they've had a blood test. They can find out what the results were as soon as they're in the chart. I want to ask a sort of a question that's a follow-up on the textbook, but medical writing is usually thought of as sort of an unemotional sort of thing, And uh, but a, a subject like obstetrics seems like it would lend itself to remembering uh, some of the patients that you yes. may have seen, and they don't all end the way that you want them to end. And I'm curious about uh, how that impacts your writing now as you've had all these years of experience. When you go back and look at these and you think, oh, I remember this, and this yes. is a particularly... Yes difficult topic for you. Well, you're absolutely right. And and so what I do as we're preparing for a new edition is I'm always collecting information. So if a patient has an, an interesting ultrasound or x-ray or CT scan or heart rate tracing or pathology slide, um, we're always collecting that information. Of course, we de-identify everything. Mm -hmm. So there's no way that a patient could be identified. But we try to tell a story in the illustration. So we'll have the heart rate tracing, the ultrasound, uh, and then if you read the legend, it'll give you that clinical vignette. And as you say, sometimes they don't end well. And I can go through the book, and I can look at those illustrations, and I can remember so many patients and um, their stories and what happened, and sometimes things ended well and sometimes they didn't, but it all comes back as you look at those 
uh, cases, and you know some of the cases have been in the book uh, from the very first edition. But you don't forget the patients. You right. don't forget the patients. Right. Making sort of a, a, a big turn here for the, the last question. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. Sure. I understand that you're an authority on popular music, especially apparently country music. So do you have a particular songwriter whose writing really moves you, and uh, this is not related to the books, <laughs> that you think of as, you know, that's somebody that if I were going to write country music, or any genre of music, that is the person that I'd like yeah. to have written that song. Hank Williams. Hank Williams. Has to be Hank Williams. Um, incredible. Um, I'm so lonesome I could cry, Jambalaya. And then he had a series of songs that a lot of people don't know about, where he took on a new persona called Luke the Drifter. Hmm. And they were songs about life and lessons in life. And he has one about gossip. Uh, gossip is cheap and it's low. So unless you've made no mistakes in your life, be careful of stones that you throw. I always remember that one. Yeah, that's Have to be Hank Williams, who died much too young. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Sure, Abby, thank for you. being here on Writer's Talk. For more information about my guests, Dr. Stephen Gabby and NPR librarian Key Molesky, please visit www.writerstalk.org. Join me next time for OSU Senior Director of Learning Technologies, Michael Hoffer, who will talk to OSU Lantern reporter, Emily Tara, about the Digital First Initiative and how it will influence writing and learning at The Ohio State University. Also, OSU student Krista Benson learns about The End of Men and the Rise of Women from author Hannah Rosen. And don't forget the November 20th deadline for the Writer's Talk Barnes & Noble, the Ohio State University writing competition is still out there. So go to www.writerstalk.org for more information about how you can participate in this contest. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.